0: Good morning everyone it's great to be here with you i thank you so much uh, for the elders and the uh, committee who interviewed me in the beginning just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here Uh, to the worship band that was wonderful right into what i wanted to talk about today talking about the inheritance of the nations that's that's right on what i wanted to say today so by now you can already tell that i'm not from these parts right (laughs) had a few sentences and so we moved down here from new jersey about six years ago and uh Uh, We've just enjoyed our time here very much in Texas. We just love it, and we're not going back. Uh, Song, you're going to Staten Island. We have family there. It will not remind you of Texas. I can (laughs) guarantee you that. (laughs) So uh, you will long for the days, but I I pray that you have a wonderful time there, and may it be a blessing. Okay, Uh, Hebrews. Imagine that you have a child, and your child is about to make a really terrible mistake. What would you do? in that situation let's say that you have a daughter and maybe she's about to do something really really silly like maybe become involved in an affair or something or maybe you have a son and uh, he's thinking about dabbling in drugs or maybe pornography or something like that what would you do you would love that child so much that you would want to tell them in the strongest words possible not to make such a mistake you would want to issue them that kind of warning because you love that child of yours and you want to protect them and so the author to the Hebrews is doing the same thing. He's writing this letter to a bunch of new Christians. They're converts from Judaism. And they, the, the letter's written about early 60s, uh, and he's writing this to the Hebrews who are in a situation where they're about to undergo persecution, or perhaps they're even already undergoing persecution, because at this time uh, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, he was a madman, and he was a sadist, and he loved to inflict torture on people. And in 64 AD, there was this fire in Rome, and it burnt down a lot of the city of Rome. And people thought that Nero was the one who actually started the fire because he had such ambitious building projects, and he wanted to clear out space in Rome so that he would have room for his ambitious building projects. Well... He wasn't about to let himself be blamed for that fire. And so what he did was he chose the Christians as his scapegoats. And so from that point forward, Christians were in a lot of danger. They were being martyred for their faith. Some were being burned in the streets. Others were being fed to lions in the Colosseum. And so the author uh, of the letter to the Hebrews, he's trying to warn them, look, persecution is coming, um, but stay with it. Now, I wonder if any of you can relate Now, I know that at this time in America, we are not likely to be martyred for our faith, although that could change, right? Things can happen fast, and we've seen a lot of things uh, just in the last 20 years that would have been unthinkable 40 years ago, right? So it's not impossible to think that someday this could happen even in our own cities, but not likely today. But we do face persecution of various kinds, and I wonder if you even think about this as persecution. Uh, Let's say you're at work and you're afraid to speak out about your faith because you're afraid that perhaps you may be fired for saying something about your faith. Or you may be disciplined or reprimanded, you know, don't say that, this is the workplace, you're not allowed to talk like that here. Or maybe you're going to be passed over for a promotion because of something that you have said or may say uh, in your place of business. That's a form of persecution. Maybe you have a child who has left the faith or a sibling who has left the faith. And that's just a constant source of tension between you. Uh, That's another form of persecution that we uh, are likely to face now in our current climate in this country in which we live. So the author to the Hebrews understands what those people were going through, and he understands what we are going through. And so what he's saying to us through this letter is he wants to ask us this question. Where else are you going to go? in times of trouble in times of need if you might happen to need a savior which we all do right Uh, where else are you going to go jesus is the only answer and so throughout the entire letter he's talking about how jesus is better than angels moses the law the priests he mediates over a better covenant he offers a better sacrifice But these first three verses are the key to the entire letter because this is where he lays his foundation for the rest of the entire letter saying who Jesus is, the work he's done, where he now sits so that we understand his full glory and majesty and that we are to turn to him for all that we need. So he wants to warn these these new Christians in the strongest language possible, like we would warn our own children if they were about to make a bad mistake, Uh, how they are supposed to stay with Jesus, don't turn uh, from him in times of trouble. So in these uh, first three verses, we're going to see the reasons why Jesus is better than anything that Judaism had to offer, the offices that Jesus holds, and our proper response. Now, I know that you have seen the handout in your uh, bulletin, and you're probably thinking, this guy's going to keep us here till dinner. With all that stuff on there but uh, you can tell i'm from new jersey i talk fast so uh, we'll get through it i promise in pretty short order all right so hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. i'm reading it from the niv in the past god spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, these verses are just absolutely packed with theology, Christology, so much that we need to know about the person and work and office. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at nine reasons from these verses why Jesus is, any, is better than anything that these Jews might be tempted to turn back to, and also to us, anything that we may be tempted to turn to instead of turning to Jesus. So, let's just get right into it. Jesus is better, number one, because he is God's final word. Look at verse one. God spoke to their ancestors in the past in many times and in various ways. So what that's all about is God has been speaking to people since the time of Moses, about 1500 BC, all the way through Malachi. So 1500 years or so of prophecy, God's speaking to these, uh, to these various authors of the New Testament in 39 different books uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, uh, lots of different authors, and he speaks to them in many different ways as well. So how does God communicate? He communicates in dreams, he communicates in visions, he can talk through handwriting on a wall, right? He can talk through a donkey if he wants to, he can talk in poetry, he can talk in parables, he can talk in prose. God is not limited at all in the various ways that he communicates. But as time went on, God reveals more and more of himself, right? Progressive revelation, more and more of God revealing himself until God was ready to reveal in these last days Jesus, his Messiah, his son. And in these last days, that means the time of the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah, uh, now he's in heaven, but the last days continue until he comes again. So we are living in these last days, just like the author of the Hebrews was when he wrote this letter. So Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had to say through the prophets. He's the fulfillment, he's the completion, he's the culmination. So... I would submit to you that in 610 A.D., uh, God did not speak to Muhammad in the mountains somewhere revealing something different than what God had revealed through his son, Jesus. And I would say to you that God did not reveal himself to Joseph Smith in the 1800s in Palmyra, New York, somewhere through the angel Moroni revealing something that is different than what God revealed through Jesus. Even though today there are millions and millions of Muslims who follow the teaching of Muhammad and millions of Mormons who follow the teaching of Joseph Smith, Uh, that is false revelation because it contradicts what Jesus brought because Jesus brought the um, the final testimony of God. So we have this tradition in our family called, on Christmas, we do this thing called Open Me Last Gifts. And what it is is the kids open the gifts that are, under the tree and then we save one gift and molly will write a poem and it's kind of serves as like a treasure map for where this uh last gift can be found so she'll write out some poem and the kids will read the poem and they'll be like i know where it is and they bolt off somewhere in the house to find that gift and when they open that gift That's the best gift, and it's the last gift. And we save it for last because it's the best gift. And in the same way, God has saved his last and best gift for us in Jesus Christ. There are no more gifts after the open me last gift. And Jesus is the final revelation of God in the same way. So he's been speaking progressively for many, many centuries until Jesus. But in Jesus, God speaks with finality and with clarity. So the first reason why Jesus is better, because he is God's final word. The second reason why Jesus is better is because he is God's son. We see that in verse 2. He is now spoken to us through his son. What is it about Jesus that makes him different than the prophets? That's an easy one, right? He is God incarnate. He is different from all the other prophets because he's God in a human body. The prophets received and spoke God's word, but Jesus is the word, right? So we read in in John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Moses couldn't make a claim like that. The angels couldn't make a claim like that. None of the prophets could make a claim like that. Only Jesus can make a claim like that. So he's better for that reason. And since he's God incarnate, he's a higher category of revelation than anything the prophets could ever bring. So Jesus is better, number two, because he is God's son. Number three, the third reason he's better is because he's the heir of all creation. Why is Jesus the heir of all creation? What is it about Jesus? What what is special about him that makes him the heir of all creation? Well, the entire Bible is the story of how God was going to redeem a lost world from its sin and the sin that it committed. It was planned from the beginning of time. And Jesus was planned from the beginning of time to be this agent of redemption, We can't redeem ourselves, right? We can't atone for our own sins. Only Jesus can atone for our sins. And that's why God says in Psalm 2.8, which we heard in the song that the choir sang, I will give you the nations as an inheritance. I will give you the nations as an inheritance. That's God talking to Jesus. What is that inheritance? Who are these nations? We are, right? We are. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus despised the cross or endured the cross and despised its shame because we are in his inheritance, right? It says that who for the joy set before him, we, we are the joy set before him. So we are part of his redeemed and not only us, but the whole world, right? In Romans 8, it talks about how the world is groaning, and waiting until finally Jesus will redeem it from its slavery to corruption. So we are his inheritance. The world is is his inheritance. And in the end, Jesus is going to inherit all that he has redeemed. Now we all understand inheritance. Uh, We inherit when our parents pass, we inherit what they own and only what they own. And when we pass, we will give to our children what we own and only what we own. We can't give them more than we own. But Jesus owns, or God owns it all, it's all his, and Jesus inherits everything that he has redeemed. And certainly no Old Testament person, uh, no angel could make that claim. And so this is another reason why Jesus is better than anything that the prophets could possibly offer. So the third reason Jesus is better because he's the heir of all creation. The fourth way that Jesus is better is because he created the entire world. Moses can't say that. The angels can't say that. Jesus was there in the beginning, which shows that Jesus is eternal and that he is omnipotent. So a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon might say that Jesus is a created being, but Jesus is not a created being. Jesus was there in the beginning. In the beginning was was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. So Jesus was there in the beginning, despite what anybody else uh, from other religions might say. He, he did not become a God. He always was God, and he spoke the word at creation, and now he is the word spoken in the end times in these last days. So he's better because he created the world, and nobody else could make that claim. So there's no reason to turn back to anybody else, uh, is how the author is encouraging the, the, uh, the Hebrews that he's writing to. A fifth reason, Jesus is better because he is the radiance of God's glory. This word radiance is really interesting in the New Testament. It's the only place where this word is used. The word is apogosma, and it means brightness from a source. So, but it also can mean brightness reflected by a source, so kind of a double meaning. So like the moon reflects the, the light of the sun, but the, moon has, uh, but the sun has its own radiance as well, so Jesus reflects the glory of God the Father, and yet he has his own radiance, all of his own that he is able uh, to give. So Jesus is better because he has his own radiance and reflects the Father's radiance. Moses, the angels, they don't do those things. So don't turn, stick with Jesus. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. A sixth reason why Jesus is better. We're just continuing through verses 1 to 3. You see how much there is in these verses? It's just loaded with talking about all these things that Jesus is and the reasons why they shouldn't turn away. So the sixth reason is that he is the exact representation of God's nature. And the word for exact representation here is the Greek word character, only place in the whole New Testament that this word is used. And isn't that an interesting word? We obviously get our English word, character, from this Greek word, and it means in our, um, in our language, in the English language, it's about your character. It's about what makes you, you. And so, interesting that this is the word that is chosen here to be used in the New Testament to represent God's nature and God's character. In the first century, it was used of coins. So the coin would be the exact representation of whatever you put, whatever liquid metal that you put into the coin press and created a coin, it represented exactly what the mold represented. And if you've ever been to uh, the Fort Worth Mint, uh, we've been there a couple of times, and if you've been there, you have seen how money is made, right? They make this engraving, and it's got to be perfectly etched and you want this engraving to be exactly how you want it to be because every note that comes off that engraving is going to be an exact representation of what is on that engraving. And so the the engraving has to be perfect so that everything the engraving is, the note will be. And in the same way, everything that God is, Jesus is. So to look at Jesus is to look at God. The Jews they were not looking to Jesus. They looked to their Old Testament heroes, right? They, they, they thought that they saw something of God in their Old Testament heroes, and they did because we are made in the image of God, and we all have some of the attributes of God, but none of us have all of the attributes of God. So they loved Moses, and Moses was wonderful. He was God's chosen instrument to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. But in the desert when he was frustrated with the Jews, the Israelites, who were traveling through the desert, he banged on a rock with a stick and said, must we bring water from this rock? And God's like, who's we? (laughs) Who's doing the work here? I'm the one doing the work here. You're Moses. You just hit this rock with the stick. I'm the one who does the work. And so the penalty for his pride and his anger was that he didn't get to cross into the promised land with the rest of the Israelites david a man after god's own heart right Um, a wonderful man of god yet committed the most atrocious sins with bathsheba and having her husband uriah killed Uh, solomon given all the wisdom that you could possibly want and somehow strays from the faith enough to marry pagan wives and to build altars to pagan gods it seems unfathomable to me but this is this is what we're capable of as human beings this is the sin that we're capable of but When you put your faith in in another man, you're gonna be disappointed. When When you put your faith in Jesus, he's the exact representation of God, you'll never be disappointed. And so this is what the author wants to say. So Jesus is better because he is the exact representation of God's nature. Number seven, Jesus is better because he upholds all things by the word of his power. The Greek word for upholding is this word pharaoh, and it means to bear but not in the sense of bearing, like you're bearing this burden and it's so heavy and you can't handle it anymore. In Greek mythology, uh, there's this character called Atlas, and Atlas challenges the throne of Zeus. And Zeus is not happy about that. And uh, unfortunately for Atlas, he was unsuccessful in what he tried to do. And his punishment was that he had to bear the entire world on his shoulders, right? So many of you have seen that statue where you have this Atlas struggling under the weight of the entire world. And that is his penalty for eternity. That's where Atlas has to, has to be and has to bear the world. But that's not what this word means. Jesus doesn't bear the world in, in, in the sense of bearing a burden. It's more in the sense of sustaining the world and carrying the world to where he wants it to be. So a deist might say God started the world and then he walked away and he's no longer involved in the world but that can't be so because this verse clearly tells us that he, he sustains all things by the word of his power. And if that is so, then if he stopped sustaining all things by the word of his power, even for a second, this entire universe would simply disintegrate because it's his power that holds it up and holds it together again. He's moving everything toward its desired goal. Okay, the eighth reason why Jesus is better, and this is my favorite one because this is where we get to talk about the infinite and unfathomable love of Jesus. He made purification for sin to God. It started at the fall. Eve ate the apple, gave it to Adam, Adam eats the apple and the world falls into sin. And so we are are stained by original sin and we're stained because we commit our own sins. This is a problem that we can cannot solve for ourselves. But God had a plan to solve it. And in the Old Testament, he solved it by the blood of bulls and goats and rams. And so every day you're bringing these sacrifices. Uh, you make a sin and you bring your, your sacrifice. There's blood spilled. The sin is atoned for. The sacrificing never ended. Day and night, night and day, bringing your animals to be sacrificed to atone for your sin. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come and he would take the blood of bulls or the, bull, the blood of a bull and he would go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar there. And there the atonement happened that was good for the entire year for, the, for, that, for that particular year. But That didn't change anything in terms of what the daily sacrifice is required. Next morning, you're up, you're sacrificing again, uh, morning after morning, night after night. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to live like that? How many times do we sin before we even get out of bed in the morning? And that's going to cost us a dove, a sheep, a bull, a goat, an ox, whatever it is. We just come back from the sacrifice, and we sin on the way home. we got to turn around, go back again, and bring another sacrifice. It never, it never ends. So how difficult is it to live under, under that burden? It had to be enormously difficult. Uh, I liken it to this. When we were kids, our parents used to make us make our beds day after day after day after day. And I was like, Mom. Why? Why do I have to get back, make this bed? I'm just going to mess it up again, right? This is the kind of burden that that we have. Nothing like the first century uh, sacrificial system. Um, So that's the kind of burden that we have. I don't understand the bed making. I I never understood it. I still don't. I don't make my bed. Just (laughs) personal confession. Um, But... They continually had to sacrifice whether they liked it or not. So imagine you're a Jew in the first century and you understand what it is that Jesus has done for you and that the sacrificial system is over. And not only are you saved and you've put your faith in Jesus, you're free from this incredible burden of sacrifice day after day. Imagine a permanent reprieve from bed making. That's what it was to these Jews in the first century. And so that's that's what he, what he offers. And a major theme of Hebrews, of course, is that Jesus offered himself once and for all as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he's telling these recipients of this letter, this is who Jesus is. He's atoned for your sins once and for all. Don't turn back to something that's so inferior to what it is that Moses offered under the law. So the eighth reason, Jesus is better because he made purification for sins. And the final reason why Jesus is better is that he now sits down at the majesty of the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's a very special seat. Remember, John and James asked Jesus, allow for me to sit one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. Only God can give this. And God gave this seat to Jesus. It's a position of authority, royalty, power, and honor. And that's why in Philippians 2.8, uh, uh, it, it says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that at that time, God would highly exalt him and raise his name above every other name. So Jesus has the name high above every other name. And he sits down on that throne, which implies completion of the work. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said this amazing word, to tetelestai. It's a Greek word that means it is finished. That's how it's translated in most of our Bibles. But tetelestai is an accounting term. And it means paid in full. So if you went to a merchant and you bought some goods and he handed you a bill in the first century and you paid the bill, he would write on your bill, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full, it is done. So the sitting implies the completion of the work and it also implies God's satisfaction with the work. The Old Testament priests never got to sit, right? They were constantly working, sacrificing. Jesus sitting implies that his work is done. His sacrifice is unique, it's perfect, and it's satisfactory to God. So that's the ninth reason. Jesus is better because he sat down at the majesty of heaven. Okay, nine reasons why. You got, you got all those? We can move on. Jesus is all of these things. Jesus accomplished all of these things. Some of them happened in eternity past. Some of them happened in time, in real history in time. Some of them are happening even today, and they're going to continue into eternity. There is no one else, there is nothing else who could ever satisfy the things that Jesus did or satisfy God's wrath. Jesus is the only one who could do that. He's the only one who is the Savior of the world, and he's the only one who is God incarnate. So, the author of the Hebrews is saying to these people and to us, where else are you going to go? If you need a Savior, which you do, and if you have times of trouble, which you will have, where else can you go? Turn to Jesus. All right, let's look at the offices that Jesus holds, point two. Jesus, I wonder if you notice as we went through these verses, that he holds a lot of Old Testament offices that were very important. He first served as a prophet. We don't often think of Jesus as a prophet because we think of him as Messiah, as Savior. But what does a prophet do? A prophet speaks to men from God. Jesus speaks to men from God. He came to give us what we need to know for salvation and to serve as our a substitutionary sacrifice sacrifice for us. And that's why uh, it says in verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. That's what a prophet does. Jesus is the final prophet, even predicted by Moses. So in Deuteronomy 18, it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. First century Jews they knew this, this, this prophecy from Moses. That's why they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Are you the one who is to come? And he said, no, I'm not. So, so the Jews were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting for this prophet. They just didn't recognize him when he came, and that's the tragedy of it. So Jesus serves as prophet. He also serves as creator. Obviously, no one else could hold this office other than Jesus. Verse 2 says, God made the world through Jesus. John 1, we've said before, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, all things were created through him, and apart from him, nothing has been made which has been made. Jesus as creator, he's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, nobody else can make this claim. Jesus as priest, what does a priest do? Well, we said a prophet speaks to men from God. A priest goes in the other direction. He speaks to God for men. So whereas the prophet is speaking God's word to men, a priest is offering sacrifices from men to God. A priest in the Old Testament constantly had to offer sacrifices first for his own sins because he is a sinful and fallible human being, just like the rest of them. So he has to offer sacrifices for his sin first, and then he's able to offer sacrifices for the people. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could serve as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Hebrews 8, in fact, Jesus is called our high priest. Serving that function of the high priest who goes in and sprinkles blood on the altar once a year to atone for the sins, Jesus serves that role once and for all. So Jesus as priest. And finally, Jesus as king. The Jews mocked him mercilessly when he called himself a king. And it was the fact that he called himself a king that ultimately ended up getting him crucified because saying that you're a king in the first century is a challenge to Rome. Rome didn't care a whit about Jesus's blasphemy, right? They they, they couldn't have cared less about that. But when you say that you are a king, that's a challenge to Caesar. And that is what ultimately ended up getting him crucified. But we know that Jesus is a king, and we know that he is sitting at the right hand of God right now on that throne advocating for us, and we know that he's coming again, and he's going to take his earthly throne at that time, and so we worship him as king, and we eagerly anticipate the day when this grand event is going to come. Jesus is prophet, he's creator, he's priest, he's king, he's God incarnate. He is the savior of the world. The grave couldn't hold him. He defeated sin, death, and Satan. And we celebrated that glorious event last week at the resurrection. We worship Jesus because of this is who he is. But while he was on earth, while he was on earth, he knew that he was going to suffer. And he knew he was going to be killed. He told his disciples over and over again. And they just didn't get it. So when it came, they were very surprised. But he warned them that it was coming. He said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. And they did, did they not? All of the apostles were martyred except for possibly John. Uh, in, we see in the book of Acts, this goes on and on, the apostles beaten for their faith. And when John and Peter were beaten for their faith, they didn't seem surprised by it anymore. This has been going on for a while. But rather than being surprised by it, they went out rejoicing, thanking God that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. And that's just a wonderful, beautiful response to persecution. He warned them that they were going to suffer persecution. Countless martyrs have died in the 2,000 years since suffering for their faith. But Jesus isn't just talking to, to the apostles or to the other martyrs. He's talking to us, too. We're going to suffer persecution as well. We're not exempt from this. It should not come as a surprise for us when we suffer as well. So when these times of trouble come, when these times of persecution come, the author to the letter to the Hebrews wants to say to us, where else are you going to go? I'm the only place, I'm the only place that you can have refuge. What's our proper response to these things? We have talked about Jesus and magnified his name from these incredible verses, and we're asked to respond to that. Well, there are several things that we ought to do, I think, in response. And the first thing is obviously worship. What else can you do except get down on your knees, get down on your face, and worship Jesus for all that he is and all that he has done for us. Jesus was so big, so enormous, so powerful that he can create this entire universe by speaking a word, and yet so humble and so loving that he would die for each and every one of you and me, right? Each and every one of us. That's the magnificent and amazing love of God. I'm thinking about this Handel's Messiah and, and thinking about uh, the last movement where he's, where he's uh, singing the song from Revelation chapter five because it's such an amazing example of what worship is. Handel wrote this, this, uh, this entire oratorio, it's called, in 24 days uh, is, is what I read. And he chose these verses from Revelation chapter five because they most glorified and most magnified who Jesus is. And so uh, I'm gonna read them from the King James version because that's all that Handel had, right? You know that the NASB and the NIV, ESV, they didn't exist back then. Handel had the KJV, so I'll read the KJV. Just feel the power of these verses. I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor, and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Can you hear the song in your head? Anybody wanna sing it? (laughs) I'll spare you. But you can hear it in the rhythm and this is how how, uh, Handel chose to worship God by using these verses. And so we ought to do the same. This is what true worship looks like. So in times of trouble, in times of persecution, we worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done. A second thing that we can do in response is thanksgiving. We spend a lot of time worrying about our needs, our finances, our health, our job security, our kids, our grandchildren, and it's right to do these things, and it's right and it's okay to pray for these things, but sometimes our prayer life is simply consumed by our needs, like God is some kind of cosmic vending machine that we put in a prayer and out comes the answer. Better... It is to just simply thank God for who he is. The Bible tells us that he knows what we need before we even ask. So we spend so much time praying for what we need and we forget who the person is that we're asking. This is God that we're talking to. Let's remember who he is, give thanks to him for who he is and what he has done. A third way that we can respond to these things is by service, acts of service. Jesus said in Mark 10:45, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. That is service. There is no greater act of service than that. And if we're followers of Christ, we're going to do the same. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, it says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And we offer ourselves as living sacrifices when we become involved in someone else's life and serve them the problem with a living sacrifice is that it likes to crawl off the altar when it doesn't feel like serving anymore, right? And it wants to take care of itself. We need to stay on that altar. We need we need to serve. I was able to go on a mission trip to Haiti in 2010, which was right after that devastating earthquake that they had there. It was it was awful. There were there was corrugated steel just strewn throughout the island. They don't know how to reinforce or don't have the resources to reinforce concrete properly. So all the concrete was crumbled down So these people are wandering around the streets, millions of them, with no home, with no food, with no water, with no clean sanitation. They're just wandering around looking for help and trying to survive as best as they can. When I was there, Molly and I were going through a difficult decision in our lives. We were deciding whether I should, we should, sell our house in New Jersey, uh, leave the law practice that I was in at the time, move down here to Texas and go to seminary and basically, you know, change our lives completely um, and go follow the Lord. And that was a really difficult time because it was a very difficult decision. We were changing our entire lives, obviously. But being in Haiti and seeing what they were going through made my little decision seem rather small, right? I mean, if I move to Texas, I'm probably still going to have food on my table and a roof over my head. Uh, These people didn't have the luxuries that I had. So uh, the point is serve someone else and it'll make your needs seem rather small in comparison. And the fourth thing that we can do in response is just steadfastness. Remain steadfast. Throughout this letter, the author continually uh, asks these Hebrews, uh, don't stray, and warns them, you may stray, don't stray, don't stray. Remain, uh, or keep your faith in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so uh, I'm here to encourage you all this morning, too. Don't stray from our faith in times of trouble, in times of persecution. I just ask you the question, as the, as the author to the Hebrews asked, where else are you going to go? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And so much of the world does not believe these things about who Jesus is that we have read about in these magnificent verses that start the book of Hebrews. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these things to us and that we understand them and we have accepted Jesus as our savior we understand the magnificence of who he is and lord we would pray that the world would come to know him as we do and that you would use us to become instruments so that the world could see who you are through us lord and we thank you and we praise you in jesus matchless name amen